Hello, and welcome to the G2 podcast. So we're going to kick straight off by diving into our passage. So if you've got a Bible with you, or if there's one on your table, grab it for me. We are looking at Philippians 1, and we're going from 18a to 26. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Amen. I don't know why, guys, but reading through this passage this week, I've been reminded so much of being at school. And I was so confused about this because I've been having dreams about being back at school. I have been unlocking memories of things that I did at school that I didn't even remember. And I was like, why? What is going on? And I was really confused because it's not like I was sitting in my lessons contemplating all the things that Paul was talking about. Wasn't sitting in our rest thinking about life and death and dying for the gospel. Kind of felt like I wanted the ground to swallow me up when the RS debates were just an excuse for people to say, believing in God is ridiculous. Why would you do that? But it definitely wasn't me getting ready to die for the gospel. And I didn't know what this was all about. And then it kind of clicked for me. School, well, secondary school, was the first time that I'd ever had to make a decision for myself. And actually, I think under all those big, grand ideas, that's what Paul is saying here. A few weeks ago, David talked to us about how we can get insight from Paul's prayer by looking at the passage in Philippians. And actually, I think today, in our passage, we're seeing insight into Paul's decision-making process. And for me, school was that. It was all about making decisions. I remember being in year six and we decided that I was going to be moving for secondary school. And there were two different options. There were two schools I could have gone for. And we'd been to look at one, we'd been to look at the other, been to all the open days. And we got back home and I was expecting mum and dad to sit me down and go, this was one, this was another. We liked this one better, so that's where you're going. And instead they sat me down and said, there's this one and there's this one. Which did you like better? Which do you want to go to? It's your decision. And I thought, oh no. Oh dear. How do I make that decision? That was the first time they'd ever asked me what I wanted to do in a big decision like that. And I didn't know. I didn't know how to decide. And I don't know if you remember your first big decision, but for me, it felt like I'd made that decision and suddenly life was full of decisions. Suddenly, 
I had to decide what time to get up, whether to do my homework, what time to go to bed, what I wanted to study for my GCSEs, for my A-levels. And I'd filled in all my GCSE option forms, I'd made all my choices, and I remember the day that I sent it in to mum. And she said, yep, yep. No, you're not doing drama GCSE. <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. And she said, no, no, you're not. I said, but all my friends are doing it, and it looks really fun. And she said, I think you should do ancient Greek. <laughs> and I said, don't be ridiculous, mum. That is, I mean, what is that? Why would I be doing that? And she said, I think you'd enjoy it. I think you'd get value. And I said, nope. And she said, yes. And I said, I'm putting my foot down. And I handed my form in. And next September, I was sitting in my first Greek lesson. <laughs> and I hated it for two weeks. And then I loved it. And it was really, really good. It was a really small class. And I just fell in love with it. And clearly, mum had known something that I didn't. She'd known more about me than I did myself. Turns out I loved Greek so much that I voluntarily entered myself into a classical reading competition. Don't know if any of you have done this. You might have done. <laughs> it's basically what it sounds like. You get in a room of people. There are about 20 people. It was a popular thing. And you read a piece of poetry of Greek or Latin, and you're scored on it. It was fun, I promise. Um, <laughs> And I decided not only was I going to enter this competition, I was going to pick the category where I had to read a piece of ancient Greek poetry from memory. No reason. There were other options. I could have had it written down in front of me. But I decided I was going to learn this thing. And after weeks of studying, I didn't win, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I now know that poem off by heart still, even 10 years later. And the time I'd spent doing that has clearly done something because it's still here. And I'm not going to do it for you today. Don't worry. <laughs> but it's still here because mum knew how to make a decision better than I did. And decisions are weird things, aren't they? They're actually quite complicated. People have studied how we make decisions for decades, for hundreds of years, and they've tried to come up with different theories about what goes on, about how we make these decisions. And one of the main theories is called the dual process model. And this splits decisions into two categories. The first one is called system A, and that's our quick reactions, our quick decisions. And the other one is system B, and that is our slow decisions. System A decisions are automatic. We make them without thinking. And these decisions tend to be based on our emotions, our feelings, our instincts. These are things like deciding whether to jump over the puddle instead of go around it, or what snack we want to have on the way home. System A decisions are 92% of all the decisions we make in a day. That's a lot. These kind of decisions are great. They're efficient, they're quick. They stop us being overloaded with information. If we didn't make system A decisions, we'd come to the puddle and we'd have to stop and ponder philosophically about the puddle dimensions and do a quick cost-benefit analysis of the potential joy based on the probability of our shoes going wet. Basically, if we had system A decisions, we'd be stuck in a world where people come to a puddle and stop and no one would get to work on time when it rained. But 
these decisions can be really dangerous. They can be manipulated really easily. This is what marketing techniques pry on when they decide to make just their decisions to get us to buy more things that we don't need. If you've ever gone to the supermarket hungry, this is what happens. <laughs> these decisions are impacted by our own biases, by our own histories, by our upbringing, and they're massively swayed by our own feelings. They're not accurate and they're not objective. And because they rely on instinct and feeling, they can often be really selfish decisions, especially when they're made out of fear. Does anyone remember all the panic buying and shortages during the pandemic? That system A decision-making at its worst. So we've got our system A. Filling the other 8% are our system B decisions. Now these are slow, they're analytical, and they're really logical. And this is where we weigh up the pros and the cons, and we factor in all the different angles that we can think of. These decisions are often more lasting, they have more significant consequences. These are things like, which job offer should I accept? Where should I send my children to school? What should I prioritize spending my money on this month? Or, as in Paul's case in our passage today, which of life or death is my best option in my context? Paul's thinking follows a really logical system B decision-making process. And these require three things. They require thinking power, they require time, and they require knowledge. Thinking power and time are pretty obvious. Thinking power is just having the mental process in order to make a decision. This is where if you're tired or stressed, you, you don't have that ability. These things reduce our thinking power. And time is just having the luxury of not having to make a snap decision. But knowledge is the really interesting one. And I think it's knowledge that Paul gives us his biggest insight into in this passage. Because when he was faced with a big decision stuck in prison, Paul brought all his knowledge of the gospel into the heart of his decision. It's his profound understanding of the gospel that leads him to make these enormous statements about life and death. It's his knowledge of the gospel that makes him know that whatever happens to him, life or death, he knows he expects that Christ will be exalted in his body. Because he knows the character of Jesus and the way that God works through humans, Paul's gospel knowledge leads him to conclude that if he's to go on living, that will mean fruitful labor for him. And that's verse 22. Earlier in his letter, he encourages the Philippians, saying that he's confident that he who, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's in verse 6. So Paul isn't just talking the talk to the Philippians. He's bringing that same gospel knowledge into his own situation, in his own life. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But he also knows that if he dies, he'll have eternal life through his faith in Jesus and will go to his presence. This is his desire to depart and be with Christ in verse 22. And he uses this gospel knowledge to evaluate, to weigh up his two options. And it's through his gospel knowledge that he is able to conclude that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knows, he understands that God is good and will bless him through either circumstance. So what is this gospel knowledge? Well, it's Jesus. 
Paul is putting Jesus at the heart of his thinking. We get a snapshot of Paul's gospel knowledge in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians. Unusually, uh, Paul's letters aren't really structured like this, but Philippians is structured around a little poem uh, that all his other thoughts are kind of borrowing from and taking from. His other letters tend to follow a, a thought from beginning to end, but Philippians is more like a collection of mini essays or kind of little snapshot thoughts that draw out themes from the poem. And the poem is like the center of gravity around which all the other thoughts revolve. And what's the poem about? Well, it's about Jesus. It's just six verses, but they all speak of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's a brilliant little summary of the gospel. Paul says, in your relationships with, our, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is where the poem begins. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Paul's sitting in prison, and he's writing poetry about Jesus. I wonder what we would write if we had just six verses to capture the whole gospel message. We don't really have time to unpack that properly today, but this poem summarizes Paul's understanding of who Jesus is. This poem is his theology, this is his gospel knowledge, and this is what's at the heart of everything that he's writing to the Philippians. This is what's at the heart of that famous saying, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's this knowledge that allows him to make his decision. Despite being with Jesus, being infinitely better than the hard work and risk of fighting for the gospel, Paul's knowledge of Jesus leads him to make the decision that goes against his own personal desire and decide that it's better to go on living to serve the Philippians. And he says this, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So when Paul doesn't know what to do, he makes the decision that's best for his community and goes against his own personal desire. Take the gospel knowledge out of that decision and it makes no sense. Why would you go against your own desire? And actually, I don't think any of us would have questioned it if Paul had ended with, and I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, so I'm going to go and do that. We'd have thought, wow, his conviction about the resurrection is so strong. He doesn't fear death. Isn't that amazing? We should all be more like that. We should all be ready to die for the gospel. But bring that gospel knowledge back into the decision. Put it at the heart of it, and it becomes a very different story. Put that gospel knowledge at the heart of the decision, and we see how we're called to acts of sacrificial love for our community. 
For Jesus, the sacrifice was humbling himself and becoming obedient to death on the cross. For Paul, the sacrifice is choosing to go on living, putting himself in harm's way and struggling for the sake of his friends and for the advancement of the gospel. Our gospel knowledge has to be at the heart of our decisions. Great, so we just have to be really deliberate in putting the gospel first uh, and making all our rational decisions about Jesus. Easy, right? We've got all the time in the world for those decisions. We can read, we can pray, we can ask other people, and we can bring all our knowledge into the decision. Perfect, great, job done. That's not quite the story. Can anyone see the problem with this? I said that the system B decisions, the slow decisions, are 8% of the decisions that we make. Who wants 8% of their decisions to be made through gospel knowledge? That's like saying, hi, I'm Ellie, I'm a Christian, 8% of the time. <laughs> what about the other 92? <laughs> Those decisions that get made automatically, without thinking, by instinct. How do we make sure that those decisions reflect the gospel? For system B decisions, the slow ones, we have to put our gospel knowledge at the heart of that decision. But for system A decisions, we have to make sure that we have gospel knowledge in our hearts. In other words, our gospel knowledge has to be learned by heart. In the book of Proverbs, knowledge and wisdom are presented as physical objects that are worn with you. There are verses about knowledge as a garland for your head and a chain for your neck and something that can be written on the tablet of your heart, something that should be stored up within you. It's not enough to have this knowledge in our heads, to get it out of our mental filing cabinets whenever we need it. This knowledge has to be part of who we are. We have to be able to use it without thinking. We have to learn it by heart. And how do we do this? Well, like anything, it takes time. It's not a quick fix. It's a really slow process. And it only comes through knowing Jesus. In his book on the power of thinking without thinking, the author Malcolm Gladwell writes that just because something is outside of our awareness doesn't mean that it's outside of our control. These decisions might be made without our conscious thought, but with time we can train our instincts, our impulses, to walk in the way of Jesus. When I was a bit younger, the church that I went to was really big on this thing that they called chair time. And it was basically, you sit in a chair with a piece of scripture and you pray through it and you talk to God. It was a bit like what they do on the Lectio 365 app, if any of you have that, that kind of guided praying through of scripture. And the rule was you had to do it in a chair. It couldn't be something that you did lying in bed just before you go to sleep. And to be really honest, I never really saw the point. I thought, well, I pray before bed anyway, and that's like the same thing. So why should I do both? God loves me anyway. I can't bully him into loving me more. Surely this, like, we read the Bible every day because we're Christians is just something we do because we say we're good Christians. <laughs> and it was only... A lot, le alarmingly lot later, that I realized that the point of chair time had nothing to do with making God love me more and everything to do about what was in my heart. Chair time was about getting to know God's word and allowing it to transform who we are. It was about getting that gospel knowledge into our system, into our hearts. It was about learning it by heart and knowing it by heart. 
And the only way to do that was to spend deliberate time with it, to chase after Jesus, to chase after his knowledge and his wisdom, and to get these things into our hearts. How many times do you listen to a song before you know its lyrics off by heart? Weeks, months, years? And you don't listen to the same song 20 times in a row just to learn it. You're exposed to the song. You hear it here, you hear it there, and somehow, suddenly, you just know it. It's not like me learning that Greek poetry where I just had to sit for two weeks and just recite it again and again. These are things that we pick up over time by building habits. And it's the same process when we make a habit of spending time with Jesus. We begin to learn him. We begin to know him. And in turn, over time, our decisions, our unconscious, automatic decisions are influenced by him. We can turn away from the worldly knowledge that we all absorb and instead allow his wisdom to guide us, his wisdom to be at the center of what we do. And when we know him by heart, we begin to see our selfish decisions turn into selfless decisions. We see both our system A and our system B made with gospel knowledge at their center. So what knowledge are we using to make our decisions? What knowledge are we storing up in our hearts? Is it the knowledge of the world that we absorb every day? Is it the knowledge that tells us that self-satisfaction is the only thing that matters, that what we desire is what we should decide? Or are we bringing our gospel knowledge, our Jesus wisdom into our decision-making? Are we bringing the type of knowledge that calls us to make sacrifices for our community, to build up our church, to love unconditionally, and to give up everything that the world calls valuable to follow the one who gave everything for us? Where does our knowledge come from? We're going to spend a few minutes just thinking and reflecting on our decisions. And I'd like you to take a minute and think of a decision that you've made in the past week. It could be something big. It could be something small. It could be a system A or a system B. But just take a minute in the quiet of your heart to let God bring a decision to mind. Maybe it's a decision that you feel great about. Maybe it's a decision you regret, you'd wish you'd made differently. I want you to think about how you made that decision. What knowledge was at the heart of it? Did the gospel factor into it? Was it a decision that strengthened the people around you? Or was it a decision that strengthened your own desire? How could you bring more of Jesus into that decision? How can you retrain your instincts to walk in the way of Jesus? Jesus.